Hello, and welcome to another episode of Outlier Academy's Spotlight Series, where every week we sit down with a founder, operator, or investor working at the edge of what's next, all to learn from the people and companies building the future. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today, I sit down with Jessica Schaefer, founder of Bevel, for a master class in PR. Because I'm embarrassed to admit that despite being a part of multiple companies making brilliant use of PR, including Apple and Square, I don't know the first thing about it. So when I hear people like Bill Gurley of Benchmark say things like, most companies way underinvest in PR, they'll spend to the moon on variable marketing, but they stop spending at $50,000 a month on PR, which is crazy to me, I thought it was time to sit down with an expert and get up to speed. And there's no one better than Jessica Schaefer. She started her career at Stephen Cohen's Point72 Ventures before founding Bevel and becoming the chief communications officer for Acorns. And as you'll hear, she's taken a very different approach to building a PR firm. In this episode, we'll explore what Jessica has learned doing PR for Point72, Acorns, Boosted, Rally, Public, and many other firms, her advice for founders on when to start investing in PR and how to think about it strategically, how PR compares to paid acquisition for growth, including how one media appearance led to 100,000 plus app downloads for one of her clients, what it was like to work with Stephen Cohen, and why he's a master at asking the one important question in every single meeting, why Bevel hires from outside the industry and pays their team for performance based on hitting targets set by their clients, and a ton more. If you've ever wondered what PR is all about and why it matters, this episode is for you. You can find the show notes for this episode at outlieracademy.com slash 84, including links to everything we cover. For more from Jessica, you can follow her on Twitter at jfran underscore PR. You can also learn more about Bevel at bevelpr.com or bevelpr on Twitter. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Jessica Schaefer of Bevel. Jessica, welcome to Infinite Games. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So... I am thrilled to sit down and talk with you for a bunch of reasons. But, you know, this episode, we're really going to explore PR around not only your background, but obviously the firm that you founded, Bevel. And the reason there is because I feel like I don't understand PR very well, and I'm guessing I'm not alone. And so I've worked at companies where PR has played a massive role in making the company successful. You know, I think Square is a great example there. And yet I don't really understand the tactics. I don't really understand how it works. And so the goal is to sit down with you and try to get as much downloaded from your brain as possible. (laughs) All about PR. (laughs) So what I wanted to start is just at a super basic level, if you could define PR and talk about the role PR plays in building brands and companies over time. So my definition of PR is the ability to build brands and influence different stakeholders. So More traditionally, people always thought about it just as media relations, but it's really your skill to communicate somebody's story to anyone. And that can be your stakeholders, that can be investors, that can be employees, both internal and new prospective employees, and then of course, the media. But I sort of think of the media as the last thing when I think about PR. So it's much more starting internally and then working out? Is that the right idea? Starting internally, figuring out what is our product, what messages do we want to communicate externally, who do we want to communicate to, and sometimes that makes sense doing it with the media, and sometimes it doesn't. A good example is my husband says, I'm very good at PR. I never... I never lose any argument, but oftentimes I never get into arguments because I'm always pivoting and switching the topic, which can be very <laughs> frustrating yeah. to be married to me. You take your I media think. relation skills. <laughs> to very to seriously. <laughs> <laughs> which is probably helpful and probably not so helpful at the same time. <laughs> right, exactly. I want to clarify terms as well, too. So PR obviously stands for public relations. I've also heard it referred to as strategic communications. Do you have a favorite word? Have you just accepted PR because it's well known? We haven't accepted PR and I'll tell you why. I hate the term PR girl or hey, you're the PR. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but people tend to say it. They say, oh, hey, it's the PR. It's sort of strange. You would never call a doctor like doctor girl or whatever. So anyways, at least at Bevel, so we our strategic communications firm, and we are structured much more in a way similar to a Bain or McKinsey and think of ourselves as strategic advisors versus 
straight public relations. Yeah, that makes sense. When you think about incredible PR, and I'm really excited to hear your answer on this, what handfuls of companies come to mind and what do you like about their approach? And, you know, part of that is I think everybody has an opinion on what ads they like. I think it's very different. You know, how do you like how companies show up in the world? So I'm curious what it would be your top list or two to three companies you think are interesting in terms of how they approach it. Wow, I think all the companies that I work on, obviously, my favorite kind of PR is the ability to really change and shift a narrative. So in my career, when I worked at Moody's, it was just coming out of the subprime mortgage crisis, and they were largely blamed for causing it. And so the goal and the mission was, how do we learn from what happened? And how do we shift the brand and take accountability and then talk about what we're doing differently? And so that was an interesting exercise. And then for Moody's, I went to Point72 and that's Steve Cohen's family office. A lot of people know him for the show Billions, which is loosely based on the firm. But when SAC Capital was shut down for insider trading and then Steve, you know, he's one of the most resilient people that I've ever met, kept going and reopened. It was critical to rebuild the brand and talk about what we were doing differently and how we could attract top talent. And I remember when I made the decision to join Point72, a lot of people were like, what are you doing? You know, you have so many opportunities at Moody's. This doesn't really make sense. Why would a hedge fund manager need PR? And everyone needs PR. I think anyone who is leading any category can really benefit from reputation management. And it's not something that comes to everyone easily, nor should it, unless you're a sociopath and you just like talking about yourself. Yeah, that's true. It falls into the bucket of skills that we should all probably be taught a little bit of, but we inevitably we're taught nothing. <laughs> we just have to figure right. it out on our own. Exactly. Talk a little bit more about Point72 and Stephen Cohen. And, you know, as we discussed, I think everyone listening to this podcast will definitely know who Stephen Cohen is and I think have interest. So I'm curious just if you could share your perspective on what was it like to be a part of the firm and what was it like to work with him? It was really exciting. I think the opportunity to join was a highlight of my career. And it was or is arguably one of the most well-known stories in finance. And so to be in the room and to be the person who was deciding on strategy, which reporters we were speaking with, which conferences we were speaking at, and the baseline was always no. (laughs) We're not speaking with anyone, which is a strategy in and of itself. Everybody wants to know what they don't have access to, right? And so we were extremely strategic about who we would speak to and when we would speak to them. I would say working with Steve as a spokesperson and a thought leader, he was one of the smartest people I've ever worked for, mostly because he would ask the question that would cut through every other question so you wouldn't have to be in the meeting for an hour. Like he would take a meeting that was supposed to last 90 minutes and just cut to the core of it within five minutes. So I thought that was fascinating to watch. He really is an introverted person. He loves to trade and he loves his family and that's all he wanted to do. So he would carve out time to focus on PR, which was not something that came to him naturally. He didn't like to speak in front of a lot of people. We did a lot of work on what words are you going to say? When are you going to say them? And why are you going to say them? And it was mostly spent on Sundays at 7.30 a.m. in his Picasso room. So I didn't really have a life, to be honest, on the weekends because I would have to get up really early to drive there on Sundays. But it was definitely worth it. When you work with someone like that who's a public figure, but they're very introverted, did you have to do any explaining about why PR was important? Or did he already understand that? He understood the importance, but there are a lot of executives who their first response is always no. (laughs) And I think as a strategic communicator, coming to the table with the opportunity, in my mind, is only 25%. The rest is convincing the executive team why this matters and why they should even spend their time. And then really, really manufacturing and managing the opportunity So I like to say that an interview is not a space for new thoughts. It's an ad. 
usually, or it's an opportunity to talk to an audience that you haven't communicated to. So you should never go into an interview and sort of just speak off the cusp, right? That doesn't make a lot of sense. But you will find CEOs are busy, and they don't take the time to prep, you'll send them the prep document. So I think one of the most important things is to really understand your executive and how to best communicate with them, whether that's via Slack or text or a call or emails or whatever. It's super interesting. Percentage is kind of staggering. The, the opportunity is only 25, <laughs> 25% of it. And the rest, 75% is literally working on it, managing it. I think that says a lot, obviously, about the importance of prep. <laughs> and the after piece of it, too. So when you're junior and you get into PR, you get really excited if you get an opportunity. And then you tend to get disappointed if your spokesperson turns it down. Usually they turn it down because you didn't give them reasons why it's important and you didn't come to the table like ready with that information. And then the rest of it is actually managing the interview, doing the follow up, figuring out what's interesting. How do you build out the story? How do you bring other resources and sources to the table? And that's something that I think differentiates Bevel from a lot of other communications firms. It's like landing the opportunities a small part, <laughs> then begins the real work. <laughs> right, exactly. So you have this experience at Point72, then you move to Acorns where you joined as chief communications officer. And part of that is, you know, Bevel has a really interesting model, which we can talk about now, of kind of embedding within the firm. Talk about what attracted you to Acorns and what it's been like, because that's something now you've done for years. And this is a brand that, you know, I think has built up an enormous amount of goodwill. I feel like almost everybody recognizes and knows the name Acorns. So what is it like, you know, what attracted you there? And then what has it been like to kind of work with that team over time? and see this come to life? Sure. So Steve Cohen started a venture capital fund, 0.72 Ventures, and I worked on the launch of the fund and started working with all of the different portfolio companies when we would make an investment. And one of the first ones was Acorns. And I just absolutely fell in love with the brand and the mission of the company, which is to empower everyday investors to start saving and investing. It was very different from anything I had done. I'd always worked in financial services, sort of, you know, making money for people who already had a lot of money versus giving back. And so the CEO, Noah Kerner, he was just like, what you did in three days, no one has done in three years. And what he meant was just the velocity of the coverage, but also how on message it was at the time, or I think it's still true today. But one, there aren't a lot of people who go into financial communications. Most people who go into PR are like, I want to do beauty or fashion or consumer or entertainment, something a little bit more sexier. Most people are not like, oh, I want to do fintech. That's just not a common thing you hear out of people majoring in PR. So there was definitely a need for it. And then I worked on another funding announcement and that CEO was like, oh, I want you to come and work for me. And then Steve was like, well, you're not going anywhere. So I ended up having three people who all wanted me to handle their communications. And so I thought, why don't I start Bevel? And at the same time, really join Acorn as a partner. And more recently, I joined as their chief communications officer because they were considering going public and I wanted to be the one to take them into the public market. Talk a little bit about that because I know you work with a number of companies obviously leading up to IPOs, now obviously a very common route through a SPAC, which is in some way similar but different. You have to get shareholder support. People have to basically vote and say yes, you know, that they do want this company to come public. And all of that's fascinating because these companies typically have been private for five, ten years, but you know, I think somewhere in the five to ten year range is pretty typical. And now they're getting ready to go public. And I know that you work with them on the airstrip in the 12 months before they take off. What are you doing and why is that period so important? Sure. So a lot of companies come to us when they're either considering any sort of liquidity event, whether they're going to be acquired or they're going to go public via SPAC or the traditional route. And Bevel is one of the few firms that works with a company from seed all the way into liquidity. In that 12 months period, it's critical that you're really building out the profile of the executive team. I think in the beginning stages of a private company, 
most founders or CEOs tend to focus on product and customers and not as much of building their external profile. It's very important that investors know who's helming the ship and building out that executive bench so that it's not just this typical like founder profile, but it's a real company. And then figuring out like those 12 months leading up, what announcements do we have? How can we figure out key growth metrics that we can communicate to investors? Which ones make sense? Which ones don't make sense? And you better make sure you have them right or else compliance and the SEC will come knocking on your door. So we figure out what does this roadmap look like? How can we, from this point moving forward, try to grow the valuation from a billion dollars to $2 billion to $3 billion? And a lot of that comes from the public markets and the image and the perception. And I think you've seen a lot of companies who haven't done it well. If you look at the WeWork example, which is everybody knows, but it's fairly tragic. I don't think Adam Newman really managed that well from a public relations point of view anyway. No, it's a great example because I feel like everyone, when you say WeWork, I think everybody thinks of obviously all the drama around Adam Newman. And yet I find what they've built amazing. Like I love being in WeWork locations. They're beautiful. They're, they're really nice. You know, and so it is a great example. It is a little bit counterintuitive to think that, okay, I'm getting ready to go public. Obviously we need to focus on the company. We also need to focus on the exec. I guess like what do's and don'ts, like what tactics are you using when you're working with execs? Is it figuring out their personal brand? Is it figuring out whether they should tweet or post and how much? Because <laughs> I feel like now there's also a lot of CEOs that have almost celebrity status just under their own brand name. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, I think one, so we're launching a completely separate practice in early March focused on building executive profiles and just like personality branding, which is a little bit different work than marketing communication. So it's more of a publicist role. And my view is as a CEO, the way you're leading your company and your actual day-to-day responsibilities should change. So you should be focused on communicating with investors, communicating with the media, everything should be external. And then you should have a really strong president or COO who's running the day-to-day operation. And what we focus on is what conferences make the most sense? How do we build custom events so that we're communicating to investors or customers? Having a really strong internal communications program so that you're leading the organization through this change and they know everything that's going on and they're very excited about it and hopefully working harder, which in this era of the great resignation is even more important than it ever has been. And then awards and all those sorts of things, but making sure there's a very consistent and steady drumbeat. And I love to really understand who these people are as individuals. What makes you a crazy person that would decide to start a company is not exactly the path that most people take. And so we try to figure out what was your childhood like? How were you raised? What influenced you? Why are you doing what you're doing? And then putting some like human element into who they are to help communicate their story. One of the things you touched on there was consistency, which makes me think of one, you know, when I think about the execs that have been the most impressive that I've worked with, you know, one just in and of themselves, they're very consistent. And I think a big part of that's important for building trust. That's important for always showing up as the same person. It's also very subtle in that I think a lot of people don't necessarily think, oh, if I'm more consistent, if, you know, if I show up in a more consistent way day to day, it's going to build trust. Just talk a little bit about the importance of consistency and why that's so important in like shaping perception or managing perception or keeping it positive. Sure. Well, Speaking of consistency, I mean, Steve wore the same sweater every single day. (laughs) (laughs) Not the same one. I'm assuming he had all different sweaters that he would dry clean. You know, it's sort of an expected thing. It does help to build trust. But in terms of what you're communicating externally, I think it's important to figure out three key themes or narratives that you're always touching upon that align back to your values, but also to the brand. And then any opportunity there is to be talking about those in the market, you should be taking that. And then on the other side, I think the numbers, whether you hit them or not, they should always be the same numbers and they should be consistent to the brand. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's what the market always reports on. I'll give you an example. When 
we first started building Acorns brand, every single reporter wanted to talk about AUM. And for Acorns, it wasn't about AUM. It was really about how do we help every single American who's making under 100000 a year start saving and investing. It's very difficult when you're investing with spare change to amass a high AUM, right? And like most financial institutions, the way they make money is by making money off of people who have already amassed their wealth. So we really had to flip the narrative and the script and tell reporters that's not important. Like We're not even focused on that number. I know you're focused on that number, but here's what we're looking at. It's really interesting. I want to talk for a second about some of the big moments that will happen when you're trying to obviously get a company coverage. And so you talked about having these three themes, having this steady drumbeat of obviously updates or news stories or data points or releases, interviews around those things. But this also the like single appearance that can have a dramatic effect. And I know when we were talking before that Acorns had a segment on the Today Show, which resulted in what, 100,000 plus downloads within an hour, which is incredible. So talk a little bit about those, why they're important in maybe just how much work goes into one of those really big moments of public exposure? Sure. So I think a lot of CEOs, when they first start working with a PR firm, they just want like a ton of stuff to be happening. You know, they always want to see opportunities. I would argue you should really be working towards the high impact and high value opportunities. The one you mentioned when we had Acorns on the Today Show was a big product placement. And within minutes, it wasn't even an hour, within minutes, we had over 120,000 downloads. That's just crazy. And so opportunities like that are really important. I have another example. We just launched this travel company where you can search based on price versus where you want to go. It's called Elude. And Within the first like week of us launching them, they had 20,000 signups, 10,000 Instagram followers, and then they closed their next round of funding in three months. And it was like after they went on Fox Business, which a lot of people think like, oh, Fox, you know, not everybody wants to go on Fox if it doesn't align with their political views. I encourage everyone to go on Fox because they had investors reaching out to them nonstop and their round was oversubscribed. And so that was really important for them. And when they initially approached us, they didn't even have a product. You know, it was really just an idea. (laughs) A lot of people come at that stage. And at that stage, sometimes PR makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. It really depends on, is this a product that we've never seen before? And does it have a need in the market? If that's true, it makes a lot of sense. If you come to us with a product that doesn't exist, and there's a lot of noise in that specific segment, it's going to be very, very difficult to do PR. When you were talking about going after those high impact opportunities, it sounds a lot like investing. You know, it sounds like you're looking for that asymmetrical outcome where you can land this one show and obviously have a big impact. How does that shape how your team spends their time? Is it something like 50, 60, 75, even 80% of their times focused on chasing those big opportunities and the rest is the steady drumbeat? I'm curious just from like a resource allocation, I don't know, time investment standpoint, how you think about those things. Well, from a time investment standpoint, we might be operating at a loss, but because it takes a lot of time, to your point, to develop the right relationship for your client. One, we already have most of them, but we do like to work in categories where we haven't been before. So we've always been focused in fintech. I would say we're the top fintech communications firm, but then I'm just a curious person. And so I love working in different industries. And so travel, for example, the team had to spend a lot of time building relationships with Travel and Leisure and Condé Nast and all those different publications that would make sense for them. The way we actually pay our team is different. So it's based on a hedge fund model, it's performance-based pay, where they have set KPIs and those KPIs are aligned with what our clients are trying to achieve. So number of interviews secured, awards, conferences, number of stories and all those sorts of things. And if they hit those, they get paid out a quarterly bonus, which is nice for them and nice for us. 
Let's talk a little bit about that because that's one unique aspect of your model. Another one is this idea of, well, there's two others that we should talk about. One is that you hire people from outside of PR, which I think in and of itself is really interesting. <laughs> and then the other one is that you have this model where you're not only an external firm that obviously a partner that companies are working with around PR, but you're literally embedding your team and yourselves inside that company. Can you talk about both of those? And if I've missed anything else, if there's any other kind of fascinating aspects of your model, I'd love to just explore that for a little bit. Yeah. So we're a PR firm that doesn't hire PR people. <laughs> to <laughs> Try start. telling that to a, a recruiting firm. We actually ended up hiring an internal recruiter. I think it's really important for culture, but we're looking for different kinds of people. So a lot of our team, they come from Goldman or McKinsey. We have people who came from the Shorty Awards and just have different backgrounds in marketing or political affairs, which I think is interesting. And they sort of have a different hustle about them that I really like. But um, at Bevel, I think it's more important that you just, you have charisma, you're a native storyteller, you're intellectually curious, and then everything else we can teach you. And so I just like to hire really smart people from outside of communication. What's frustrating about hiring communications people is they tend to have been trained the wrong way. And so then you have to untrain them. And depending on their seniority, it can be a little bit of a mentally defeating process. So that's that. On embedding our people into the client. So I think it's critical and very important that our teams are embedded for a couple of reasons. One, you need to get the executives in the habit of just constantly communicating to you what's going on, what's important to them. It really needs to be a collaborative process. So if you hire a PR firm and you think like, oh, they're just gonna come to me with all these amazing ideas when I've told them nothing, that never happens. And it really is what you put in is what you get. As part of our model, we have like, for Allude, for example, where they're external head of communications, public.com, same thing. And I think that when you are these like high growth startups, I don't even know if you really need an internal communications person. It tends to be a revolving door and it's a really hard position to be in at the company because you're trying to build this startup. You don't have any other levers to pull. Whereas at Bevel, we work with very, very high profile investors and VCs, and the media always want them on. And so then it's like, okay, well, it's tit for tat. Like if I get an opportunity there, then I can slot my client in elsewhere. So I think long-term that makes a lot of sense. And then the third thing that we do and something we'll be expanding on this year, we'll be making a very big announcement, is we actually take equity in our clients and we don't take on any short-term projects. I can't tell you how many companies have come to us like, can you do this funding round? Or I just refuse. I don't believe in it. I think that building a brand should have sort of a snowball effect where it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the reason we take equity, one, is because, you know, the work that we're doing is increasing the valuations of the company. So I think we should get compensated. But also, it really helps to align the work that we're doing with the brand. It's really unique. And I would imagine it takes a lot of courage. Have you ever ha gotten into arguments around like, well, why don't you hire regular PR people? And why, you know, they're not good enough. Have you had any of those arguments with other peers, <laughs> other people at other firms? Every single day. <laughs> <laughs> In the beginning, I tried and tried and tried. I tried every single recruiter who was known to, you know, hiring communications. And I was just awful. I mean, it was awful. And then when we would have new people come in, oh, well, why don't you just do this? Why don't you just hire from this agency? And I said, well, we're not an agency and we're trying to build something different. And you can't build something different by hiring the same. You talk exactly like a founder, so I'm not, uh, <laughs> I'm not surprised that you work with a lot of the best founders and companies. I want to switch for a second and talk about crafting a narrative. So as an investor with a design background, I spend a lot of time working with companies to do very simple stuff, which is try to provide 
an objective lens on what they're building, why it's interesting, why it's important. And the only reason I say that is because I'm amazed at the number of times where people are like, wow, you know, and it really just takes, I think, another party engaging to help somebody maybe realize their own story. But you also just realize that even if you're in it all the time, you don't necessarily know the story. You don't know the right way to frame it up. And so I want to get your take on one do you have a process that you follow for crafting a narrative? And then just any thoughts, they can be random, they can be all over the map of like, what does it take to craft a narrative? And how do you know when you have something that has a spark to it or is working? So it's interesting, even when companies approach us, and sometimes they'll have their marketing or their comms person reach out, we never take a client on unless we can speak with the founder. And the reason is, I really want to understand what is your backstory? What is your narrative? Do you have it? Are you going to be somebody who I can put in front of the press? And not everyone is a great spokesperson. I think everyone has their own method. Something you said earlier was, is it Twitter? Should I be on Instagram? Should it be podcast? And every executive has their own thing. There are some people who are awful. I mean, God awful on TV but they're amazing on radio or they're amazing at an internal event or something that's a little bit more controlled where if you stack a fireside chat with their best friend, you know, like normally they can speak to their best friend. I love to sit down with the client and we have a pretty formulaic process in the beginning. We'll have a half day kickoff meeting where we just run through every single question that would really help get us up to speed so that we can speak intelligently on your behalf. But what we're really doing is story mining and figuring out like what is unique to you. I tend to, if something's not interesting, I'll tune off for a while. And then you know, when somebody says something, you're like, oh, that's it. That's your story. That makes a lot of sense. And then we come back and we'll provide an entire roadmap and just sort of like, how do we keep building on this narrative that's unique to you. And sometimes the founders will try to change or do something. And I'm like, no, the best people, I mean, anyone you think about who has an interesting profile or brand, they're always very true to themselves. And I think that's especially important when you think about crisis communications. Well, that's one more question. Then I want to talk about crisis communications because I think that's interesting. We can't not talk about that. You know, one of the things that I always find interesting too is when you're having those conversations with founders about what they're building, sometimes it clicks and you both have the same interpretation or the same idea. But sometimes there's a little bit of back and forth of like, well, this is the interesting thing that I think is there. And you're like, well, no, I actually think this is the interesting thing. Do you have that battle and back and forth ever to try to agree or get on the same page around what's the right way to frame it and or what are the most interesting elements? elements of the story? Of course. I mean, there are so many founders who tend to do the same thing and they think everything interesting and it's not. There, How many VCs have you heard that say like, oh, we really support our founders and we're there for every, them? Every VC. <laughs> every single VC. And so when you say, listen, you have to push back and you have to push back confidently and say, I've taken a look at over 100 VCs, and everyone says that. So that's really not unique. Let's like, let's go back to the drawing board. And they'll sometimes be a little bit taken aback. I don't think that a lot of CEOs are used to people talking to them like that, right? And then we try to get down to like, what is actually unique? What is it that not every single neobank and fintech is saying? Like democratizing access is not interesting no. anymore. Yeah. No. And that's, you know, one thing I thought was so interesting about Acorns is, you know, I think part of the success there is like you managed to take something that can sound very like wah, wah, wah. Yeah, everybody's doing that and turn it into something that's special and unique and feels really relevant to that brand. I want to ask one more question around this. You know, you talked about that any public figure that's well known is very true to themselves. And something I've spent a bit of time thinking about, and I still don't really know where I land on it, is the importance of having a little bit of controversy. And I don't mean that in the negative sense. I mean that in terms of like, I also think, especially now, part of showing up as yourself is in some ways being immovable or being like, no, this is a thing I really care about. Or being like, I know that this isn't popular, but this is my approach and leaning into that. 
How much of that do you think about and how much of that do you work with companies on? And I think what I'm asking there is like, there's the, in some ways you can think, okay, if you have an idea that goes against the grain, then we should definitely lean into that because no, you know, all press is good press. What are your thoughts there on the importance of controversy or not important? (laughs) I love controversy. (laughs) Reporters are always looking for the opposite or contrarian viewpoint. So if you have it and your spokesperson has it, I would say lean into it as much as possible. And that can come in a lot of different forms. You know, if you really want to control the message, I would suggest writing an op-ed for Fortune or TechCrunch or Recode or whatever. If you're a little bit more comfortable and maybe you're not in a regulated environment, then, you know, you can test the waters a little bit and be controversial. I think the best form of where you can do that the best is probably on TV. You should definitely be careful because then it can get cut up and replayed in a lot of different ways. And we've seen that happen. At the beginning of COVID, we were representing one of the physicians who was working with Dr. Fauci. And I mean, he had never done TV in his life. He had zero Instagram followers, zero like any followers, to be honest. We had like followers, (laughs) negative followers. He showed up to do his first broadcast. It was a dark room. The background was awful. The lighting was awful. I think he was, I don't even know where he was looking. So a lot of work had to go into grooming him. But by the end of it, he was on all the late night shows, the daily shows. Like it was insane. So it's amazing. A little bit of work goes a long ways. Talk a little bit about crisis communication. And the reason I want to bring that up is at a super high level, it feels like say something very generic. All of us, whether individuals or companies, we're going to go through good times, we're going to go through bad times. And so it feels like a PR strategy is recognizing that there's good times and bad times and then being able to help people when they're in a moment. That's not so great. You know, and an example today that I feel like is a company that is going through that is definitely Peloton, where I'm like, I think they make great products. I think it seems to be a great company. It's obviously in a moment in time where things are not great (laughs) from a bunch of different angles in terms of how they're perceived. I guess, how do you approach that? How do you think about and work with companies when they're in a not so great moment? So first, I just have to say, I'm obsessed with what's going on with Peloton right now, (laughs) because it's such a classic, dumb PR case where probably some junior internal employee basically and just like that reached out to them they said hey we really want to feature peloton blah 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 and the junior employee probably said oh my god i have this great opportunity to be on the show and they're all excited and then they forgot that that was only 25 percent of the job 75 percent of the job is what episode who's going to be riding the bike what's going to happen you know like and clearly none of that There was no dialogue on any of that. And the show actually reached out to us to use our office for one of the episodes. So I know how these things work. And with billions, there was a lot of back and forth, as I'm sure you can imagine, with the producer when I was working for Steve. And so, one, not every opportunity is a good opportunity. And I tell every single person who's ever worked for me in communications, and especially at Bubble, When you get on the phone with a reporter or any opportunity, you should really understand if it's a conference or if it's a media opportunity, things are different. But let's say it's a conference and your executive is going to be on a panel. You should always figure out like who else is going to be on the panel. Do we want to sit next to that person? Does that person have a viewpoint that's aligned with our values? Is it going to be stale? Is it not going to be stale? Can we figure out how to just do a keynote? That would be for a conference. For broadcast, you always want to know who's going on before and who's going on after. So like if someone from Robinhood was going on today because the stock price is down to $13 a share, and then you have your executive in FinTech on after talking about, you know, rainbows and roses and how amazing the product is, it's probably not going to come across that well because they're going to talk about the Robinhood and like, oh, fintech is down overall. There's a lot of overvaluation. Do you think we're seeing a market correction? And the same goes with media interviews. So reporters will call, oh, I want to get on the phone. Everybody thinks it's a great opportunity. It might not be a great opportunity. I could keep going on about crisis forever, but. Yes, I think that would be great. I would love to hear you talk a little bit more. I was just going to say one thing, which is it sounds like at a meta level, what you're really saying is it's great to land the opportunity, but then you really want to try to control it and control the outcome and make sure it's going to be an amazing outcome. 
Right. I always say no bad stories, at least not on my watch. I don't want any surprises. I always try to understand exactly how the piece is going to read. And that, you know, helps also manage the relationship internally. So I can go to the CEO at Acorn. He's never going to be surprised by what's coming out ever. Another thing that happens in crisis, and this is like probably one of the funniest things to watch from my perspective, someone will reach out and they'll say like, oh, all these allegations, here's all my questions, I'm writing this piece. And then the instinct always, every single time is like, oh my God, do they have this story? They're going to write a hit piece, but we didn't even do this. Like, let's bring the lawyers in. Let's have the lawyers call the reporter. Like, we're going to sue them. It's all crazy. So like, Instead of getting very emotional, I would say figure out like really tactically, does the reporter even have a story? Probably not. Nine out of 10 times, they don't have a story because you need a valid source. And so what I've seen a lot of sort of like very green peer people do is they'll write back answers to every single question. And then basically <laughs> the you, <laughs> you just became the source. Like you just gave them the story. So. If any communications people are listening or any CEOs, I would say, don't do that. Maybe get on the phone and speak on background and go line by line and just, you know, approach it as if you were a lawyer and factually just say, this isn't accurate. Let me tell you what is accurate. Yeah. It's really interesting. I want to talk a little bit about investing in PR and doing that instead of marketing. And obviously this is, you know, playing kind of right into Bevel, <laughs> what you're doing. But this is also why I wanted to have you on the show is one thing that I've observed now is a lot of very smart people that I really respect. And these are typically VCs or CEOs, senior execs who have been, you know, really vocal about how much they like PR. And so as, and as an example, I was doing some research before this and Bill Gurley has talked multiple times. So he's a well-known partner at Benchmark. And he said things like, you know, most companies way under invest in PR. They will spend to the moon on variable marketing, meaning maybe this month it's 100,000, maybe next month it's 200,000, but they stop PR at 50K a month, which is crazy to me. You know, and then he, his other point was, I like this. He loves PR as much as he hates paid marketing <laughs> because I'm sure he feels like PR is, you know, controllable. It's this great outcome and paid marketing and can just be a slog. What's your reaction to that? And what do you say to a founder or a company that maybe just doesn't know why it's smart to invest in PR. Talk about like the investment case, why it's so important. Sure. So we work with 50% of our portfolio is actually, we work with venture capital funds and then the other 50% is brand. So I've heard it on both sides. There are VCs who are like, you need to over index on PR and over invest. And then there are others who honestly, I just don't think understand it. And they probably had bad experiences because there's a lot of PR firms out there who will literally take on any client. And you just can't do that because one, not, I mean, let's be honest, not every product is interesting. Not everyone has a story and PR isn't right for everyone. But I think now what we're seeing is at least on the growth marketing side, the cost has gotten significantly higher. So like crazy high (laughs) and people are spending insane amounts of money. And so the CAC, which is cost per acquisition of a customer has skyrocketed, at least on the FinTech side of things. And so people are spending a lot of money to acquire a customer. And typically they're doing that through paid ads on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and then every single tech company from what I've seen you know, maybe this is a grandiose statement, but a lot of them are working with the same influencers. And so there's customer fatigue. They're seeing the same influencers used across all of these platforms. And then they don't, one, it's an ad. And two, it's just, it's not authentic. And with PR, you can, one, build your own content channels and you can earn trust with your customers and acquire them in a different way. I think a good example is one of the venture capital funds we work with is called Torch Capital. They've invested in Sweetgreen, ZocDoc, Roe. I mean, like they've invested in a lot of amazing companies. One of their fintech companies is this uh, neobank called Lilly. And the founder was actually very against doing PR. And the VC was like, no, 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 you have to work with Bevel. 
I promise you, like, stop spending money on growth marketing. And so we literally doubled their customer base in nine months from 220,000 to 500,000 customers. And we did this really interesting content campaign with Adam Lafitte, who is an influencer on Instagram. And we had over 1.5 million views on TikTok and Instagram. So things like that, I think you can start to marry different channels like in the same way without paying them and doing a paid ad. Yeah. I mean, I think your point around, which is what everyone wants, that you're building this proprietary communication channel is really important. And I think people are realizing that, you know, anytime you're paying one, those costs can change. I mean, the number of CPG founders that have just had a terrible 2021 because their cost to acquire customers literally tripled and is still at that high level and they're struggling to get it back down is crazy. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, when you recommend that companies start investing in PR. So you talked about that you guys are one of the first, obviously, you'll work with companies as early as seed. At the same time, as we've talked about a little bit, there are companies that are at the seed stage that don't really have anything that's ready for the world yet. They don't have a product that's compelling or they have an idea, but it's not visualized or they haven't you know, invested in brand. So just what's your take on when it's right to start investing in PR? What are kind of the check boxes that people need to check to know, okay, yes, <laughs> I'm ready. Sure. So we probably look at over 300 deals or companies a year and we'll take on 10% of those. So, you know, like 30 companies now our portfolio is at about 45, but what we look at, we look at three things. One, are you working on something that we haven't heard of before? Because we see so much that if it sounds the same as something that somebody else is doing, it's very likely that it is the same. So are you doing something that the market needs? Two, are you a second or third time founder? And then three, the network effect. And what I mean by that is who is in your network? Who is backing you? For the travel company, we've never represented a travel company, but the co-founder Priceline was on their board. And they also had Union Square Ventures as an investor. And so they just had this lineup of really interesting people around them supporting the brand. They had never started a company before. And so what that means is like we're literally starting at ground zero when they have no media profile. You at least need to have like the co-founder of Priceline going on CNBC and saying like, hey, I believe in this company and here's why. So if you don't have one of those three things, you shouldn't do PR. And then there's also in the beginning, like if you look at a company like Plaid, for example, Plaid didn't do any sort of PR in the beginning. Their whole mission was let's sign on every single fintech and let's really build out product. And it wasn't until their acquisition fell through that they picked up on the media and PR side. Mm -hmm. And so it can also be very late in a company's life <laughs> when it, when it actually makes sense to start investing. Yep. Right. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you're like, we absolutely have to talk about <laughs> before we wrap? I don't think so. I do think we, we covered a lot. Okay. And I'm going to ask one random question, uh, which is, it's timely in the sense that I feel like this has been building for a while, but you know, I know a number of founders. One of the perspectives I think a lot of founders have today is that the media is out to get us, meaning they don't like tech companies. They always want to have the bear case. They want to try to compare you to Theranos or WeWork or what is your take there? And the reason I'm asking is because I always struggle with, is this real versus perceived? <laughs> like, is this even a thing or is this just a, a shared sense? Do you think there's any validity there? I don't know. Any thoughts? So I have a secret to tell you. <laughs> Founders and CEOs typically like control and they like to be in control. And the one thing you cannot control is the media. And that's what journalism is for. And so what I've found, and it's almost every single founder I've ever worked with, in the beginning, they always have that view. The media is out to get us, you know, because in their peer group, it's probably similar. And what I say to them is building a relationship with the press is like anything else. You should approach it as if you're building a relationship to make a big sale or with an investor. Go out to drinks with reporters. Open up the book to the extent that you can. 
really share with them what's going on because there is nothing worse than having somebody else tell your own story for you. And the reason is, is typically wrong. <laughs> so I think anytime you hear that, it's just their reaction was, oh, they're out to get me. And then they didn't get on the phone. And then the reporter has to fill the paper with somebody's notes. And so they end up calling everyone else who isn't you. And on the flip side of that, and maybe you don't have any pieces that come out like this for your clients, but when you're working with someone and they have that reaction, whether you think it's justified or not, what do you say to them? Is it just, don't worry, this is just one story? What would be the general line of thinking or what would you say to that person? I try to use a super basic example, like, do you have a friend who cheated on their partner? And... If they say yes, and then I'm like, okay, well, should that person speak to the media or should they let their spouse speak to the media? And then they sort of, that example, for whatever reason, I mean, it's very relatable and people then seem to understand, but I always just, I can be fairly convincing and I can always convince someone to get on the phone and I'll usually say, listen, if you're not going to do the interview, I'm going to do it on your behalf. And then they'll That's probably they'll a good. It. Yeah. <laughs> That's the, it's the ace in your back, back pocket to make sure that they show up. This has been incredible. I mean, I wanted to cover, dive deep into PR, talk about why it's interesting, talk about the different ways to approach it. I feel like we've covered an incredible amount of ground. Where can people, and typically I have all of this in notes. I did not do my homework this time. So I'm just going to ask the question where can people find Bevel and where can they follow you if you're on Twitter, if you're on social? Sure. So they can go to bevelpr.com. We also have a community called Bevel Books and Bourbon, where we basically have the top thought leaders and different novelists go through their books and we'll meet quarterly. So that can be fun and you can meet some of our clients and also different reporters. And then on social, you know, it's funny, we have our blog. So I'll often write for that, I'm big on Instagram stories. I don't post a lot, but if you want to follow my adventures, it's just jfran underscore PR. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the time. This has been incredible, Jessica. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much for listening. For links to everything we discussed, as well as the show notes and transcript, visit outlieracademy.com slash 84. At outlieracademy.com, you can also find more incredible interviews with the founders of Superhuman, Levels, Rally, Common Stock, and Primal Kitchen, as well as best-selling authors and many of the world's smartest investors. You can now also find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash outlieracademy. On our channel, you'll find all of our full-length episodes, as well as our favorite short clips from every single episode, including this one. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn under the handle Outlier Academy. From our entire team, we hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope to see you right here next week on Outlier Academy.